0: Join me, Dr. Kathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life, and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Pravitha Patale is an associate professor based across the Centre for Longitudinal Studies at the Institute of Education and at the MRC Unit for Lifelong Health and Ageing in the Faculty of Population Health Sciences at UCL. Her research focuses on the development, risk protective factors and the consequences of mental ill health and the ways in which we can reduce the stigma around mental illness and promote well-being. She uses large national studies, including the British birth cohorts to investigate mental health through the life course and works on evaluations of school-based intervention programs to support and promote young people's mental health. Her recent research has highlighted the increasing levels of mental health difficulties faced by the current generation of young people in the UK. She has received much recognition for her research, including the British Psychological Society's Award for Outstanding Doctoral Research, Contributions to Psychology, and was on Forbes' 30 Under 30 list for science and healthcare. Welcome to the podcast, Pravitha. How are you? Not too bad. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Praveetha, tell us a little bit about your role for
1: those listening. So I'm a researcher so or an academic based at UCL in London. My research is mainly focused on mental health, but in the population. So I'm interested in everybody's mental health. And this is both sort of mental ill health and mental health difficulties, but also mental well-being. So how we have good mental health. And I study this population-based study, so I'm interested in what is the development of mental health across our lives, but also what are the risk and protective factors, and occasionally also study what are the consequences of poor mental health. So for example, what are the consequences of mental health difficulties in adolescence for people's outcomes as adults?
0: That's my role. So a very, very important role. And tell us, you just mentioned mental ill health, mental difficulties, well-being. Sometimes the language around mental health can be terribly complex for onlookers. And we we sort of get confused as to what we mean by mental ill health or what the difference is between mental health and well-being. Could you say a little bit about
1: that? Yeah. So I think mental health. Is everything as in it's both ill health and well-being and this is how it's reflected in how for example the WHO defines health which is not just the absence of disease but also good health. So I think for mental health that means mental health includes mental ill health so difficulties and this can be we can consider this on a spectrum so everybody has some levels of difficulties and then you have people who have very severe difficulties which you could consider as being mental health disorders. And I think mental good mental health is when you have sort of... So people, when they think about well-being, they think about happiness, but also flourishing. So, you know, doing well, having a meaningful life and thinking your life is worthwhile, which is bigger than just not having symptoms. So I think it's important that when we use mental health, we remember that health includes both good and bad health. Because most people, I think, use the word mental health to mean mental illness. But I think it's important not to conflate health as being only the absence of illness.
0: And is well-being
1: then a consequence of good mental health? I think well-being is good mental health, so, or at least mental well-being. I think, again, well-being is a broader concept. So you can consider, for example, that well-being can include wider things than mental health, including sort of you know economic security and food and shelter and good relationships. And but I think mental well-being is good mental health, at least in the way I use it. And
0: obviously, Pravita, the, your area of research is absolutely at the forefront of everyone's minds and concerns, certainly post-pandemic. But equally, before the pandemic, we were all very concerned about mental health issues among children and young people. I just wanted to refer to something very recently, a study that was done in 2021 by Vasileva, who showed a staggering amount of diagnosable mental health issues In young children, it was across eight countries, there were 18,000 children who were assessed as part of that meta-analysis, and a fifth of them, under seven, had diagnosable mental health issues. That was really quite shocking to me when I read that the other day. But equally, we've all known for a long time that half of all diagnosable psychiatric disorders, certainly in this country, occur before the age of 14. Can you just respond to those figures? And, and how do you respond to those figures? Does it, is it equally as shocking for you?
1: Yes, as you said, we know that half of all diagnosable disorders occur before 14 and more than 75% before adulthood. So we know that childhood and adolescence is a really important time, the first two decades in setting us up and our mental health for the rest of our lives. I think the thing that these sort of numbers always remind me or sort of frustrate me is because that is not reflected in how we fund mental health services and mental health research. So if you think about mental health services, less than 10% of the mental health service budget goes to child and adolescent mental health. So we really have set up a system where we know this is the case. We've known for a long time about this half of all difficulties by 14 and, you know, more than three-fourths before adulthood. But we still primarily fund adult mental health services, and all the support is focused on sort of intervening in adulthood after the problems have not only become more serious, but have been around for a long time. So, And the frustration is that that is a very inefficient and non-optimal way to do it, because we also know from lots of research, but also this sort of idea of early intervention, not just early in the life course, but also early in the course of the disease or difficulties. So it's just easier and better to help young people when difficulties start, rather than letting them get entrenched and you know young people struggling for many years and then trying to help them when they're adults. And it's also just better for the young person's outcomes and for society, I think, if we could help more people earlier rather than waiting until they
0: were adults. it makes total sense. So there's definitely a funding gap that needs to be addressed, which I think all mental health researchers have been talking about for quite a long time. But as a country, you know, I want to talk about how we can intervene collectively earlier to prevent the onset of mental health disorders. And I want to talk about at family level. So I think that in my work, I often realize that parents aren't often aware that their own mental health is highly correlated with children's mental health. What can we learn from your work about what we need to be doing at family level other than um, raise awareness? What are the things that can happen at home to ring fence children's good mental health?
1: And what are the protective factors that families need to be most aware of? Oh, there's many things there. So can I start with answering the question around just thinking about prevention? So thinking about prevention, I think one of the issues with prevention is that if it is working well, you don't see it, right? So if we had good preventative approaches and universal interventions, it's harder to measure the bad things that didn't happen. So it's always harder to make the case for prevention with policymakers. So we end up in a situation where we instead let problems get quite severe before we intervene because that's like the difficulty with prevention is it's harder to say because we did this, this many children then didn't have mental health difficulties rather than sort of saying when children have mental health difficulties, we did this and this many children improved. So I think that is sort of the wider issue with just thinking about prevention and why it's so hard to make the case to policymakers and generally to society about prevention. So coming back to the question around family. So I think, as you sort of said, we know that parent mental health is highly correlated to children's mental health. So I actually, I would argue that it's not as highly correlated as people think, because Part of the reason we think it's highly correlated is also a function of how children's mental health has been studied for many decades, which is that in children and young people's mental health, we have often asked parents to report on their children's mental health. And when we do that, you are right, they're quite moderately correlated. So a parent's own mental health and a parent's report of their child's mental health are decently highly correlated, not still very high, but I would say a moderate correlation. But when you ask children about their own mental health, that correlation with their parents' mental health is actually much, much weaker. So parents' mental health sort of biases their own uh, reports of their children's mental health, I think. So it's important to ask children about their own mental health because the children have their own perspective on their mental health. And at the end of the day, it's their mental health. So it always sort of frustrates me that we ask parents about children's mental health as the primary reporter because, you know. Most children after a certain age, seven or eight, are able to tell you about their mental health if you just ask them appropriately. So that is sort of one other thing. So I think the assumption about the high correlation itself needs to be challenged and is a sort of artifact of how we've measured mental health and child mental health research for a long time. But in terms of what we can do and risk and protective factors, I think there are a lot of things around sort of social support and close relationships that can be good for mental health. And equally then we have, you know, sort of a lot of evidence around poor relationships or sort of adverse, for example, abusive or maltreatment in relationships that is bad for mental health. Obviously, these are not sort of bad experiences are not equally bad for everybody's mental health. So there are individual differences in how much adverse experiences affect children's mental health. But I think generally, as a principle, sort of positive, warm relationships that don't involve some amount of violence and victimization are good for mental health. And the opposite is true in terms of being bad for mental health. We also know that in the school context, for example, again, bullying victimization is sort of a really clear risk factor for poor mental health, but also quite tractable. Like we've known for a long time that being bullied is Bad for your mental health. So again, it's one of those things you can sort of do something about, but it's also something that's really hard to do something about. I guess there are always some children that bully other children, but again, just sort of in terms of things that we know, And but there's sort of in thinking again about the family environment and the school environment, there's positive things, right? So we focus on what increases risk for poor mental health, but equally in the same vein, good friendships and positive school climates. So schools in which children feel safe, think they can talk to somebody, an adult or a teacher about their difficulties, seem to sort of foster better mental health among children in those environments than schools where children feel unsafe and don't can't talk to anyone. So I think there's definitely things we can do about fostering more protective, safe environments for children.
0: I think as you've been speaking, I've been reflecting on the fact that so many young people that I've met, you know, with mental health issues, and they come from very loving, loving families with, with engaged parents and all having, they've got all those supportive and protective mechanisms technically in their lives. But how does it explain the prevalence of mental health disorders when we know that perhaps children's school culture has never been as safe or mental health is, seems to be a great talking point in schools, but we still have these big numbers when it comes to young people's mental health disorders.
1: Yeah, and it's, that's a really good point, especially around the increase. Right? So Not only is it large numbers, it is larger than prior generations. And I don't think we have very good explanations for these observed increases yet. But it is also important to remember that young people's mental I mean if you're thinking widely about teenagers outcomes there are increases in things like depressive symptoms and self-harming behaviors but there's also decreases in other things so for example consistently for the last few generations we see a drop in the proportion of teenagers sort of drinking smoking and engaging in sort of substance use we also see drops in externalizing difficulties, so children or young people taking sort of engaging in antisocial behavior. So as part of my research has been looking at this sort of young people's health outcomes as sort of slightly more broader perspective. And when you take a step back and you look at all different types of health outcomes that are relevant to teenagers, you actually see that it's not a very clear cut sort of everything is getting worse type of finding, but that. On some outcomes, definitely things are getting worse and on some things, things are arguably getting better. So, yes, yeah, so I think that is one important aspect so that, you know, to sort of remember that it's not all bad news. But, yeah, definitely on the on the findings around self-harm and depressive symptoms, I think it is very striking how high difficulties are in today's teenagers. But equally, I don't think we understand well what is driving these generational differences in mental health difficulties
0: and as you've suggested children young people are you know partaking less in risk behaviors but at the same time they they've never been at their you know they're very unhappy aren't they <laughs> so we have sort of unhappy children it seems nationally who are potentially being you know in inverted commas better behaved than other generations so, so how do we sort of come to terms with with that if
1: you like I don't know. Um, there's very little research around what this means. So we've recently finished some analysis where we looked at this sort of, because the other thing we know is that these things are not isolated things, right? So we know that substance use and mental health are associated. We know antisocial behaviours and depressive symptoms are related. So we looked at how that the, the, the associations between these things are changing across generations So this is work with Susie Gage, who's a researcher at Liverpool. And we've been working closely on sort of, I'm trying to understand not only how these things are changing across generations, but how their associations are changing across generations. And the interesting finding from that research so far has been that as, for example, substance use has been decreasing in teenagers across time, that decrease is not similar across young people with different levels of mental health difficulties. So in other words, that decrease has been more pronounced in children without mental health difficulties with the result that in today's teenagers, these sort of substance use and mental health difficulties are more likely to cluster. So if anything, more adverse outcomes. So, f- And this is not just true for substance use and mental health difficulties, but also for higher BMI and mental health difficulties. So essentially what the findings suggest is that more adverse things or more adverse health outcomes seem to be co-occurring more today than, for example, 10 years ago, which is also interesting because it suggests that risk factors for future health and economic outcomes are clustering. So we need to not only think about support for any one of these difficulties, but also how we consider them jointly. Because again, health, you know, doesn't work in silos. So your physical health and your mental health are related, you know, substance use and mental health are related. So I think it's sort of important to remember that all aspects of children's health are related and we have to think about ways of sort of improving children's health across the piece.
0: And to think much more holistically about their sort of life, quality of life, life trajectory, their, their health is not just sort of silo, thinking about different silos. And, exactly. Yeah, thinking about the whole child, really. Yes.
1: And, and a good example of that is sleep. So, one of the other things we find is that uh, children in this generation seem to be sleeping less than the prior generation. So, more children don't meet the criteria that sort of recommended guidelines of seven to nine hours of sleep a night than in prior generations and sleep I think has consequences for all aspects of your health but also you know not only your health but also your sort of focus and concentration in school so I think we have to think about the whole child and all aspects rather than any of them in isolation to help understand what's happening.
0: And I think parents are always taken aback by the research evidence around the relationship between sleep deprivation and poor mental health. Because I think this area of sleep, it brings in all sorts of issues, parenting styles, you know, Getting your child to sleep, the relationship that children have with digital technology. It's an interesting area, isn't it? it? opens up a greater discussion about a whole host of other things that are going on in children's contemporary lives.
1: Yeah, that's, that's uh, interesting. And the other thing to also remember is that not only children's mental health is getting worse, the parents' mental health is getting worse as well. So if you compare the parents of today's generation of teenagers or children to my Generation of parents, then you sort of really see differences. So mental health difficulties are not just getting worse in every subsequent generation of children; they also are getting worse in every subsequent generation of parents. So if you compare parents from the 80s or 90s to parents from the 60s, so I think it's also important to remember that as a society, we all seem to be struggling more with our mental health and be more stressed. So. I think that is also something that we forget when we talk about children's mental health that it's not just children's mental health that's getting worse, it's everybody's mental health that's getting worse and children are the tail end of that, so they are the generation that seem to have the worst mental health difficulties. But um, I think that's another important consideration, especially because as you said, everybody's mental health affects everybody else's mental health. So if, if as a society we're all all our mental health is getting worse, then I think that will have knock-on effects that we see in children's mental health outcomes.
0: And one of the things that's striking is that, I mean, as a society, we're always talking about mental health now. So I'm always surprised, you know, a little bit that we, we're we still talking about it being stigmatized because every child, every child in every primary school can tell you it's good to talk about your feelings. But at the same time, we, do, we we know that teenagers are not asking for help. They're not seeking help when they really need it. So there seems to be some sort of gap between the awareness that it's good to talk about mental health, but the actual help seeking isn't there. Is that accurate?
1: Yes. But also, I think I'm not sure it's true that everybody's happy to talk about it. And I think an easy way to think about this is think about the hypothetical scenario in which you woke up one morning and you had the flu, most adults or children would be quite happy to ring their bosses or teachers or schools or whoever it is and say, look, I'm really ill, I'm not going to come in today. But if you think about the mental health equivalent, which is you got up one morning and you felt just really, really down and you didn't think you could work that day, how many people feel happy to ring their bosses or schools and say, actually, I need a day off because of my mental health? So I think... The idea that stigma is, I I agree, we are talking more about it, but I also don't think stigma has gone away. And And the day that everybody says, yes, actually, I'm equally as likely to ring my school or boss and say, I can't work today because of my mental health, as if I would do for the flu, then I'll accept that the stigma has gone away. But until that point, I don't think it has.
0: But I think as individuals, we struggle to know whether or not feeling down does constitute having a mental health difficulty. To what extent can we work out how we just pick ourselves up, push through the day, you know, engage in positive self-talk and all those lovely things? Or how do we know that we are not able to work that day because of how we're feeling? I think that's quite a difficult judgment
1: call for people to make. But I think it's the same for the flu. I think you just feel bad, so you can't work. Whereas for mental health, it should be the same in that you shouldn't need to know whether that is diagnosis level difficulties or not. I think if you don't feel you can work, then you can't work. So I think the problem, I guess, with mental health difficulties is this idea around when on the spectrum do difficulties become illness? But I think that is true for many non-mental difficulties as well. And I think you can think about diagnosis and disorders and all these things. But I think at the end of the day, it's if you feel you can't work or if you feel you need help, you need help, irrespective of what your score on some checklist might tell you or otherwise. But I think going back to your point around help-seeking, I think one issue is around help-seeking. But I guess the assumption is that the help-seeking has to be formal. As in, so in the way, sort of you asked the question, I think the question is, are young people seeking help from mental health services or formal sources of support? But I think with mental health or with any sort of difficulties, the whole range of people and sources of help can be very wide. And we should appreciate that it's a very wide spectrum of sources that could be helpful, and i think the other thing to remember is if all young people who are struggling did seek mental health support from formal services there aren't the formal services available to support all young people so you know we have we're severely under-resourced in terms of formal mental health services we know that around 1 in 4 young people with diagnosable mental health difficulties actually receives support And the waiting lists are very long and the threshold for severity that you have to reach to receive formal help seems to be getting higher just because, again, the demand is higher than the supply of services. So I think it's important for us to think about help seeking and support in a broader sense because the capacity in the mental health services just isn't there, even if all young people wanted to get help. And I think it's even worse if young people wanted help and tried to get help. And then the system couldn't give them the support they were requesting, which is often the case with a long waiting list. Imagine you think, okay, I'm struggling. I want need some mental health support and you self refer to CAMS, and you wait 10 months for support. I mean, that's a long time to wait for support when you've made the effort to seek that help. Again, so there's problems around how much capacity the system has to support young people, but also this assumption that young people are not asking for support because i think i'm more worried about the young people who ask for support and then don't get it because i think that is potentially even worse but yeah
0: and as you've suggested i'm afraid that is very a very common story so it's really worrying isn't it
1: yeah and i agree that it it's a common story and yeah completely that is really worrying
0: well that brings us nicely onto the issue of the role of schools in in helping young people in these different situations and because schools in my experience are really struggling with the volume of need and they are struggling with the fact that they can spot some mental health difficulties in pupils, but then they refer them on. And as you say, some of the services aren't available or the support isn't available. And I want to talk about self-sufficiency in schools, you know, what schools can do, in terms of, you know, what they can do better? Can they be made more aware of the protective factors associated with the school climate? So let's talk about a lovely piece of research I think you did last year on school characteristics and mental health. I know that you looked at data from over 600 primary schools to see how mental health varied across settings and one of the very interesting things that i read in that um article was you have said the school climate and having an adult that children can trust and feel safe with explains 30 to 50% of school variance in children's mental health outcomes that that was fascinating to me that you know uh, so much can be achieved when the school climate is conducive to that kind of safety element
1: so that that particular piece of research, even we were really sort of fascinated by those results because the other thing that we found in that paper is that school composition, which is things like school size, gender balance, socioeconomic disadvantage, ethnic minority proportion and so on, didn't actually predict much of this differences between schools at all. So like one or two percent compared to this 30 to 50 percent that the school climate did. So again, really highlighting that schools can, you know, so there's obviously all these interventions, like specific interventions that schools can do and there's mixed evidence around them. But it was really sort of heartening that something that you could consider not simple but sort of a universal thing that all schools are probably aiming towards anyway, which is schools being a safe space that children can, you know, feel safe in and have adults they can trust and so on could explain this much of the variance in mental health outcomes across schools. So I think, yeah, that's a really sort of nice finding in terms of what schools can do that is more universal. And and school climate has been associated with non-mental health outcomes as well. So for example, attendance, academic performance, so all those things that schools and Ofsted care about. So I think This finding is quite nice because it highlights that schools can do sort of specific mental health interventions. But I think sort of thinking about something universal where you sort of foster a safer, connected climate in the school can have potentially quite far reaching impacts on children's outcomes.
0: And ensuring that pathways to support internally within the school are made explicit, so every child needs to know which teacher they can go to or can email if they're feeling, you know, a particular way. I think these are these are lovely actionable things that come out of your research.
1: Yeah, uh, but on the on the sense of the sort of schools becoming the sort of first port of calls for mental health support, I think, as you said, schools are sort of struggling with just the extent of student mental health difficulties. And I think over the last 10 years or so, we've seen such an increase in children's mental health difficulties and a growing increase in the focus placed on schools as the sort of setting in which children should be supported. And I think it's also important to remember that schools are not being given the resources to cope with this increase. So school budgets are not increasing And, you know, lots of schools are struggling with their budgets. And so I think it makes sense that schools are the sort of context in which children can be supported. I think it's also important to remember that schools would like to do more, but often don't have the resources to do more. So we did some research asking schools around the facilitators and barriers for providing more mental health support to students. And it was always, I mean, again, stigma hardly came up in this scenario, but it was very much about funding, teacher capacity, and the things we already, schools are already struggling with. Yeah, so I think schools just need more support and resources if they are to have the capacity to support uh, young people more in the school setting. And then it goes to around, yes, you said students knowing what teachers, which teachers to talk to and stuff. But I think teachers, mental health literacy around is also really important in This in this context. So A colleague of mine led uh, some research recently that just got published a few weeks ago, looking at teachers' knowledge and comfort around providing support, but also talking to parents, talking with students about mental health, um, understanding the school's services and resources for helping, but also how to refer children to community services and camp services and so on. And actually, the sort of striking finding from that research is For example, only 20 percent of teachers reported knowing the steps necessary to access local community services and camp services and, you know, who to call. So I think there's also sort of steps necessary around improving educator sort of knowledge and comfort around talking about but also supporting students' mental health. And again, all of this needs resources. The sort of positive from that particular piece of research I just talked about is that there was a positive correlation so schools where there was training offered so for example around you know these issues teachers who would receive training had higher levels of comfort and knowledge around these questions so again it shows that you know we can improve the confidence and comfort of teachers by offering more training but again, I think it's important to also remember that teachers are pressed for time, everybody's pressed for time and resources. So I think if we expect in the, in the face of increasing mental health difficulties in children, I think we also really need to think about schools having more resources and support in being able to support their young people.
0: And in terms of being time efficient, I'm very interested in the point of transition from primary to secondary school. I think transition provides a very useful time frame. You know, parents are very engaged and interested at that point. Detecting early mental distress could potentially be done at that point much more easily. Is that something that you would agree with? Yes,
1: um, but equally I would probably say all the time. Again, transition is obviously usually at a very particular age group for most children before as they're entering year seven. But I I suspect that is a good point in which, as you say, lots of parents are engaged with the system, but equally difficulties could have happened before they can happen later in secondary school. So I think we potentially need to think about solutions that are constant uh, all the time but. yeah yeah
0: well that that brings us to the point that I'm always asked this question schools want to assess children's mental health and well-being throughout their school career which instrument should they be using which instrument can they use in a self-sufficient way to, to assess
1: need That's a really good question. I think there isn't a straightforward answer to that question. And also, to some extent, depends on what schools want to measure. So I think we can go into a whole discussion about different measures, but I think there's sort of published papers on this and stuff. But more broadly, taking a step back, I would think also I think schools need to think about what they want to measure. So do they want to measure children's mental health difficulties so that they can screen and identify children who have difficulties? Do they also want to measure children's mental well-being and general functioning so they understand whether children are sort of doing okay overall? So, yeah, so I agree there's a, the specific instrument question, but I think there's a broader question around what schools want to monitor. And then, obviously, the question around what is the least burdensome way to do this. Obviously, it's not ideal to ask children to complete tons of questionnaires all the time because that increases burden both for the school and for children. So I think, yeah, it's, it, it's sensible to try and pick, pick one or two things that are not very burdensome. But I think there is no, we don't have an answer for what that best measure might be.
0: If they did want to focus on mental health difficulties and they wanted to spot red flags early... Would there be a specific survey that you would consider schools would be able to use easily?
1: I think there are a few options out there at the moment. I'm not particularly sort of involved in any of the options available out there, so I can't speak to the specifics of them and which might be better, but there are a few sort of different options out there for batteries of measures that schools could potentially use. For example, I think the Anna Freud Center Schools Network has a set of measures that schools can use to spot difficulties.
0: And of course, when difficulties are spotted, it's, as you say, what happens next and uh, how can schools create pathways or systems that are going to actually support children holistically. Uh, One of the things that seems to be within the psychological literature is the benefit of peer-led interventions. They sound terribly interesting. It's quite exciting, that whole literature around these peer-led interventions and how young people have the power to create their own support systems internally within schools and have that sort of agency given to them to, to really make a difference. Is that something you would agree with?
1: Yeah, so I agree with you that it's a really interesting area of research, and we've done some work looking at uh, peer-led interventions as well. And in example, we looked at which was around mental health literacy and health seeking. We did see that it seemed to be working and helpful. I think all different options should be considered and pursued because, again, the other thing to remember is that different things work for different people. So there will be young people for whom so sort the of support coming from the peer system might be more effective or acceptable than coming from, I don't know, adults or formal mental health services, whereas for other children that might not be the case. So I think all different solutions being on the table is a good thing because for different people, different solutions will work better.
0: So it's about having a sort of a diversity of approaches in a school setting and really innovating and finding out what works and having children sort of participate in, in the sort of the evaluation of that, even if it's informally. And Praveetha, can we talk a little bit about the barriers? You mentioned earlier barriers to seeking help. What do you think is going on there from a sort of a, a, a young person's perspective in your experience?
1: Actually, I I'm trying to think. We've done much more work thinking about the barriers to providing support in schools. I actually have not done research myself looking at barriers to seeking help in young people. However, I think in terms of formal mental health services, I think one of the things to also remember is that there are inequalities in who accesses formal mental health support both by things like socioeconomic advantage and disadvantage and ethnicity. So, for example, we've done research looking at ethnic inequalities or differences in how people receive CAM services. And there are sort of differences by ethnic groups in access to mental health services. And I think for good reason, I mean, some of this might reflect different levels of stigma, different ethnic minority groups, but also uh, it's important to remember that historic there's sort of large historic biases in how mental health disorders were diagnosed. I mean, probably not not just historic as well. And so I think where people are not keen to access formal sources of support, there's probably good reasons for this reluctance. And I think it's important to understand and again this is another reason why sort of community based approaches like in schools and in local communities are really important because not only are formal mental health services not necessarily accessed by everyone, they're not necessarily helpful for everyone, but they're also sections of society who are more reluctant to access them for reasons around sort of bias and discrimination in the system. So I think, again, thinking about barriers more, not only on individual level around People's fears and emotions, but also around sort of structural levels of you know structural discrimination and systems is also important.
0: And it's important to be sort of in general terms sensitive to why people may not want to go to particular services, and and they may want to seek support in other ways.
1: I think so. I think with support, especially for mental health difficulties, the support is only you have to be comfortable and trust the support you're getting to benefit from it. So I think the one size fits all definitely doesn't work. And it might work for a broken arm, but I don't think it works for mental health difficulties because you're not going to benefit from support if it's not the support you feel comfortable getting and, you know, the support that you want to be getting.
0: Yes, that's that's fascinating. In the last ten minutes of the interview, I want to Ask you some questions that I've always wanted to ask you, if that's okay, and things that I'm often asked. I just wanted to know what your view is on schools and exam pressure contributing to children's anxiety and poor mental health. It's a sort of a view that is really, it gains momentum seasonally in this country. But we talked about exams putting pressure on young people for so long, then the exams were cancelled and suddenly they were saying that not having the exams was equally putting pressure on children. So I couldn't miss the opportunity to ask you about that.
1: I'm going to sort of be cheeky and slightly... Sidestep the question, but I think instead of worrying about exams itself, I think we should think about why we get stressed about exams. So I think part of the reason, as we see sort of increasing generational inequalities and the importance of exams, and then hence sort of what the exams allow you to do. So, so the exams are like a gateway to opportunities later in life, both in terms of economic and education opportunities, and I think. The fact that we live in a society where to achieve some level of economic stability, you need to pass these gateway exams. I think that is part of the problem as well. So I, I suspect, and there is some really nice evidence around this, that in countries where there is a better social net and more sort of economic security for all adults, that sort of the stress around exams is less because it isn't like, doing well or less well in these exams is going to sort of determine your entire future economic prospects. Whereas I think in countries where that is the case, and where sort of the opportunities for people who don't do well at exams are lower, or you sort of more likely to be economically more insecure. So I think part of the pressure of exams is not about exams itself, it's about how important or not the exams are for the rest of your life, and I think young people know this. The reason the exams just them out is not because of the exams; it's because of the realization that the exams can matter a lot.
0: And they know they they know what they symbolize. They know exactly. what they mean, and it's, so it's
1: not the exam itself; it's what they kind of symbolize yeah, so ultimately. The question for us is: Why do we have a system where one or two exams that you take as a teenager? impacts your life chances so much? And are there better ways we can do this? So I think the broader questions around equality and inequalities in outcomes, but also in opportunities and how economically secure and secure you. So in the past, for example, 40, 50 years ago, school exams weren't what determined whether you would be able to put a roof over your head and Yourself and your family, and so on, as much as they do today. So, I think in an increasingly knowledge economy, but also in an economy where there's wider inequalities, much more gig economy work, much more insecure employment, I think we've made exams matter more by the systems that are currently in play, and hence the exams stress people out more. So, yeah, so, so young people being
0: stressed about exams is really a reflection of the enormous value that's placed on them as a society, exactly.
1: And I think thing for us to do is not to worry just about the exams but to also worry about what kind of society we are becoming where these exams matter so much and whether we need to do something to change that rather than just worrying about changing the exams
0: okay thank you and next question it's a big one but I can't I'm desperate to ask it why are girls seemingly disproportionately affected by poor mental health That seems to be they've got lower self-esteem, they suffer more from anxiety, rising depression. What's going on there? What's your sort of, I know we don't have long, but what sort of response can you give to that?
1: I think that's a really good question. And it's a question I'm sort of really, really interested in and doing research around trying to answer. And so one of the things to sort of flag is that the gender gap, so the girls worse mental health and boys, is not universally consistent. So it's not the same size across all countries. And I think that reflects potentially that it's not a given that girls have to have worse mental health. And obviously, there's a whole scientific literature thinking about what explains the gender gap. And often people talk about potential biological reasons, although the evidence around this is not super clear. And obviously, many, many different social reasons. So, for example, not only are there greater pressures on girls around, for example, various aspects, including the appearance and things, but also greater risks. So as recent headlines around a survey that was conducted in Britain suggested more than 85% of teen girls experience sexual harassment and unwanted sexual attention advances. So I think the amount of sexual violence girls experience is many, many fold times the sort of sexual violence experienced by men or boys. So I think we also need to make society a safer place for girls. So girls have you know, so essentially we live in a sexist society still, where I think lots of disadvantage and risk still are disproportionately felt by girls. And most young women will be able to tell you this that, you know, walking on the street at night, girls worry about so, you know, neighborhoods and our environment is just if you constantly have to f- worry about your safety, I think that contributes to your mental health. And the gender gap is not a new thing. So it's always been there. So as young people are suffering from more higher levels of difficulties, it seems to be at similar levels in girls and boys, as in it's still disproportionately higher in girls, but it's increasing similarly, if that makes sense. It's still double in girls and boys now, and, and it was 10 years ago. So I think I don't think things are happening that are increasing difficulties more for girls, but it's always been higher in girls. But partly I think that just also reflects that the world is just a more unsafe place for girls. And I think, again, to really answer the question around how we can make this better, I think there's lots of focus now on providing more support for girls. And again, I think that is the sort of intervening aspect. But I think the prevention aspect would be to make society a safer place for girls so that girls wouldn't have to have worse mental health difficulties in the first place because the mental health difficulties just reflect a whole host of other risk factors that are in the environment. And it certainly does
0: feel, I think it does feel that we're on the cusp of a change in terms of, you know, young women now are active participants in these movements. They don't, you know, enough is enough, is it is a sort of a motto of the moment, isn't it? And there does seem to be a willingness on the part of institutions and, you know, schools and, and parents to really sit up and pay attention to these some of these
1: bigger issues. I really hope that change is on its way. But I think, yeah, I, I really, really hope that's the case. But also I was reading a report recently about how it's going to be another 100 years before the gender gap in pay disappears or reduces and then I, you know, you feel sort of helpless all over again, because although more women do well at school, more of us go to university, we still get paid 15% on average less. So I think there's massive sort of structural and societal things we need to sort of fix in terms of dealing with the gender gap in mental health. It's not just about mental health, it's about everything else, because everything else feeds into mental health.
0: And that sort of brings us neatly back to what you said at the beginning that mental health almost about everything is it? it's complex and there are so many factors to consider whether you're educating children or working with them or parenting them.
1: Yeah, definitely. Mental health is such a complex issue with so many intersecting factors that I think yeah, you're right that to really think about how we improve the mental health of this generation and the next generation We have to think about mental health support and specifically about mental health things. But I think we need to think about wider things like what priorities we have as a society and how we sort of make safer environments and all sorts of other things as well to really start thinking about how we can all be mentally well.
0: Well, Pravitha, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's been a fascinating discussion and all the very best with all the important and critical work and research that you're doing.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a really interesting chat.
0: Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.